and welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. I am Scott Nye, and I am back. <laughs> I'm David Bax, and I am uh, still here. Um, Can't get rid of him. Yeah, like uh, like uh, Joaquin Phoenix in his rap career. I'm still here, right? Isn't that what that was called? Uh, yeah, that's what that was called. <laughs> not to be confused, of course, with uh, I'm Not There or... Oh, there's, I feel like there's another movie around that time that had. Oh like, well, there's um, uh, oh, uh, I was never really here yes. or something like that. Yeah, which is or another Walking yeah. Phoenix movie, if I'm remembering if yeah. titles correctly. Yeah, but uh, I, I never saw I'm Still Here, and I know. Oh it's no, like, sorry, but, that was you were never really here, which sort of response to like yeah. I'm Still Here. Yeah. Um, so I never saw I'm Still Here, and I know it's like funny that. It's like a fake documentary about Joaquin Phoenix being a rapper, but I also can't get out of my head that the like allegations against Casey yeah. Affleck came during the production of that movie. And that that's always what I'll associate it with because I haven't seen the movie. Yeah. So I think that story came out. At least I didn't hear about that story until well after I'm still here came out, which is all by way of clearing myself of saying, I really like I'm still here. <laughs> um, if you know, like, <laughs> right yeah. kind of like conceit of it uh it plays very well and there's a lot of really funny stuff in it um and joaquin phoenix is a super dedicated actor so he may you know can make it work um yeah and he is i mean just a real life oddball which i like yeah completely um uh all right um well you know what uh i never um i don't have any complaints because i never watched the trailer for i'm still here but say you had watched the trailer for i don't know danny boyles yesterday which i and, do every day <laughs> and you saw anna de armas uh in it i'd um, be very intrigued deep, deep waters on armas and then you'd be very disappointed to go to the theater and oh, find no. that she's not she's not in the movie at all and i went uh, to the theater and everything <laughs> well um i never saw yesterday uh actually um but uh yeah listeners are Keaton, they know what we're talking about that that a couple of people like sued because they rented yesterday on vod because they wanted to see an Ana de armas movie um and uh uh she's not in it uh and weirdly i guess the ruling came down that like that does count as false advertising i guess or something like that, like that. you look like you had a clarification for me scott Okay. One uh, note on oh. that sort of it. What's up? Ah, Sorry, you froze, but it could be on my end. We had the same problem with Ian last week. Hooray. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, it, that wasn't a ruling. The motion could proceed on First Amendment grounds that um, the uh, suit had merit, but not that there was not that okay. it's now illegal for studios to put anything in the trailer that isn't there but it is interesting that's gotten that far even um because yeah i mean anyone with even a cursory knowledge of film production knows that they rarely cut the trailer but you know when they have a final lock of the movie especially for a movie i mean yesterday isn't a huge movie but um even a movie with that size like it's pretty common that you're cutting you know pretty i mean especially in digital distribution era pretty much right up until you're getting ready to premiere Mm -hmm. um i know like recently there were a ton of shots in 
the trailer for Invisible Man, the newer one um, that weren't in the movie. Um, going back further, I remember seeing... So back in the days of like things being distributed on a film, you'd sometimes get trailers that just stuck around because they just had those prints around and like didn't get the prints for the newer trailers and had just something before the movie. So I remember seeing the trailer for Anchorman well after the movie had come out. And there's so oh, yeah. much of the trailer for Anchorman that was never, including like entire plot lines that they cut into a whole separate movie. Yeah. <laughs> it was still yeah. in the trailer. So yeah, it'd be uh, a real... Actually, well, I just, the reason it's on my mind actually is because I just, uh, you and I, it was your second viewing my first, you and I saw Damien Chazelle's Babylon the other night mm-hmm. and uh, I uh, loved it and um, went home and because I generally try to avoid trailers, I hadn't seen the trailer. So I was like, let me see how they how they tried to sell this thing and notice that there's a ton of shots. I mean, there's a, it's a very quick cut trailer, but there's a, a bunch of shots in that trailer that I don't remember seeing in the movie. There's a shot of like Margot Robbie in like a baseball Jersey that like, I don't remember that happening in, in the movie. No. And so that's, that's kind of what got, got me thinking about this uh, again. And then I, re- I remembered, I don't know if you remember the trailer for infinity war Avengers, infinity war. Um, there's a, plot point in infinity war where uh bruce banner can't get the hulk to come out right right but to keep that under wraps they actually like right posited the whole like banner as the hulk into a shot in the movie that he's that it, that bruce banner is in but it's not the hulk in yeah uh, just to keep that under wraps i i wonder how that would uh fly well under the the uh precedent this might be setting yeah, I would. Th- I think Marvel does that for quite a few movies, or at the very least, just like edits characters out of certain shots, um, because they had, are so reliant on like cameos these days. And they did it in um, uh, a year later in Endgame with uh, Black Widow's hair, because there's a whole thing that she like changes her hair during that five five year gap in the okay. movie. And in the in the trailer, they like digitally like made it look like she had her same hair. So strange. I know, right? <laughs> I've been thinking recently about like the box office performance of Avatar, which was not like overwhelmingly grand on its first week, which is the same with the first Avatar as well. Um, and kind of, well, no, Top Gun had a big opening weekend, but like had stronger legs. Whereas Marvel stuff tends to fall very quickly. And so much of like Marvel's box office draw is built around expecting people to care about whatever surprises they have in store. Mm-hmm. Um and whatever cameos they, that people don't want to see spoiled because really like that's all they have left you know there's no the emotional stakes of the movies are only going to get so high the mm-hmm. chances they're going to take are only going to be so great so it's all about seeing like what tiny little variation will be different this time or what person's going to show up in the new movie that they didn't put in the trailer and that seems to be like how they're juicing their entire box office these days yeah, I definitely got that impression with Doctor Strange too, which I yeah. I know like I know certain like Raimi fans were like happy that like there was a fair amount of Raimi in it, but all I could see was how much Kevin Feige there was in it. And there's a huge sense of that with multiple verse of madness where like like Chiwetel Ejiofor is almost like the like the uh circus ringleader like yeah. announcing each like cameo as they come out yeah that scene uh, took forever i was like yeah time for a bathroom break in here and Can like I yeah and legs? It, it that that scene only makes sense if you were in the mindset you're yeah. talking about sure. i like i love that we started talking about trailers and 
Thunder shows Marvel bashing again. Well, you know, that's the kind of thing will happen. So I think yeah. others, well, then it just like, it, not that this is like something that still happens today because budgets are so tight, but I always like the tradition of shooting stuff just for the trailer and like even shooting like entire separate scenes that were never going to be in the movie. I mean, to keep it like Marvel focused, there was that first Marvel Spider-Man trailer for the very first Spider-Man movie that yeah. Um, yeah. they literally had to pull because it was like set around the Twin Towers. Yeah. Um, but like that kind of stuff, I always thought was super cool. And I wish more people did that period. Um, but now maybe, you know, yeah. not that I think this lawsuit has all that much merit, but I think even just like the idea that it would upset that much of the audience to be like, well, that scene wasn't even in the movie, I think would kind of cool their jets. Plus like just wanting to save money. Yeah. Um, do you remember the, the somewhat famous trailer for the minus man? Did you I ever see this movie? Oh, I never saw it. It's like a, a 1999, like Owen Wilson, like serial killer thriller, I think. Okay. Um, and the trailer has no footage from the movie. The trailer is a guy and a girl on a date. It starts with them coming out of the movie. And it's a short film about them walking around the city, spending all night talking about the movie. <laughs> and then it has that's this awesome. like shock. It has this like shock ending. That's like funny. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to give away, but uh, it's, yeah, it's very cool. Um, yeah. And then like going way, way back, there's the, the psycho trailer. That's just Alfred yeah. Hitchcock giving you a tour of the Bateman house, uh, which is a, a very funny trailer. He's Did you see the Bateman uh, house. Um, the, the, um, the Bates house. Sorry. Uh, I was thinking of American psycho, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Bates. No, I, I just got to be the listener calling you out, you know, for them. Um, oh no, yeah. Well, I, yeah. Uh, huh. I wonder if there's any reason that, uh, uh, what's his fuck named, uh, Patrick Bateman. Was it, was it a psycho reference to go from Bates? Oh, to Bateman? maybe. Um, why am I drawing a blank on his name? Cause everyone hates him now. Um, uh, the guy who wrote uh, Brady Snell. Yeah. Yeah. I read American psycho. Um, how was it? I mean, it's like one of those things where it's like, wow, you set out to do this and you did that. And like, there's, I guess I'm not going to lie and pretend there's not something impressive about the sort of like rigor of, of the okay. thing. And how like, cause the whole conceit of the book is that Patrick, it's like all in the first person. And so, you know how in the movie, he's always like talking about business cards or he's talking about suits or he's yeah. talking about, you know, Huey Lewis in the news. So like each chapter will be a thing like that. And then everyone, and, and there'll be like these meticulous descriptions of things. And then every once in a while, one of the things the chapter is a meticulous description of is a horrible, like sexually violent right. murder. So like everything is in the same tone and it's, so it's like weird and there's something impressive about it, but uh, I wouldn't recommend reading it. I would never read it again sure. uh, of the, handful of very snow's novels i've read i think less than zero is the the best but uh i haven't read any later stuff because he sort of uh became a lightning rod yeah, he all right he's dull <laughs> uh all right well um that's enough talk about trailers which you talk about for two seconds and then went all over the place <laughs> um 
I want to tell you real quick about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, I know Tyler and I generally use them each and every day of our lives. Uh, today, I've been spending a lot of um, the first week uh, and probably it'll go longer than a week of, of the year sort of like revisiting or catching up on uh, some of the most acclaimed metal albums of the year. Um, so one I was actually revisiting right up until we started recording um, is an album called Death Western by a band called Spirit World. And the uh, the album title is not a clever name. This is like, this is a, uh, a, a sort of a hardcore metal album, but that also has a lot of twinges of country music and and the 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 artwork looks like a spaghetti western type of thing it's like a it's a whole uh i'm gonna say motif i'm gonna avoid the word gimmick i'm gonna say motif um but the music uh rocks really hard and uh it's a really great album um and it sounded great on my tweaked audio.com earbuds tweaked audio.com is where you go no sorry they're available at a low low price at tweaked audio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so uh please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Scott? What's up? We're back from our break. Let's get into it, shall we? This is kind of the official kickoff in many ways of our yeah. 2022 wrap-up. And we'll take a little break you know, and I'll do some Sundance stuff in the next couple months. It'll, it'll really like uh, next week. It'll, it'll really start again in earnest in February. But in the past, we have started the year doing your top ten of the previous year. Um, for a couple of reasons, we're not doing that this year, um, and we'll get to that in the weeks to come. I'm I'm sure. So to fill that gap i thought we would do what a lot of people uh on on film twitter have been doing and uh count down our sort of favorite discoveries uh, you know i'm older movies we saw for the first time this year yeah uh now i i gave myself some ground rules but i'm kind of curious oh, to hear hear what yours were did you did you have any rules you set out for yourself um, no, I kind of just more for my own convenience, didn't include any Godard movies in this because we talked about all of those for a good deal of time. Um, but stuff is to say like his work cinema, uh, self-portrait in December and I had one. Of, oh yeah. And praise of love. I kind of had in mind as like big mm-hmm. major discoveries during that process, but you could hear all of my thoughts on those in our gigantic episode. Um, other than that, though, I don't think I had any ground rules. I partially because I just didn't watch as many movies this past year as I right. have in years past. So it's, it was a lot easier of a list to sift through than it might have been if we did it last year. Definitely the year before the 
first pandemic year, I watched over 500 movies. So that would have been a much more daunting challenge. But yeah. in 2022, I probably only watched about 120 or so movies that were new to me, maybe hundred, even down to 100, depending on how okay. many rewatches I did. But um, yeah, so it was a fairly easy list to throw together and not have to create like a structure for, my, for myself. Uh, okay, well, let me my ground there. My first, I, I had two major rules, and there were rules that fall into that. The first major rule was to spread it around. So, you know, I watched a bunch of Godard for our episode. I watched a bunch of James Jimmy Cowan movies for, for that episode, a bunch of other stuff for these profiles. I li- limited myself to one movie per mm-hmm. profile research. Um, I also um, limited myself to one movie from TCM Fest because I figured... I could do a whole list of great movies I saw TV, TCM Fest, and also a recording of that already exists. Like we already talked at length about about those. Um, which brings me to my second rule, which was the emphasis on the word discovery. So okay. I intentionally removed two things. I removed like things that are blind spots. Like I watched lilies of the fields for the first time this year and I loved it, but it's also like, no one's going to be going like adding lilies to the field to their letterbox watch <laughs> list because I mentioned it. Like that's already a well-known movie, you know? So like when we get to uh, like, okay, listeners know I said my new favorite Godard movie was La Chinois, but I didn't La Chinois is not the Godard movie I put on this list because it seems like it didn't seem like as much of a discovery to me, just something I was catching up with. Mm. So, um, so I tried to avoid the things that are uh, already widely understood to be good. And that I just caught up with, which the, and I also just as a rule across the board, if it's in the criterion collection, I'm not, I didn't not putting in <laughs> my list because again, criterion collection as we saw with the sight and sound list over half of them are like on the criterion channel like there's so many great things on there that i feel like a movie just being in the criterion collection already kind of argues for itself and doesn't need me to argue for it you know i considered putting some stuff from because i watched the whole like third world cinema project and saw some Mm. really great stuff yeah in in there like lucia and uh soleil o uh especially but um so I considered putting those, but I was like, no, I, uh, setting this rule, I had to stick to it. No criterion. Um, I so, actually don't have any criterion stuff either, but that's pure coincidence. I didn't, uh, didn't set out for that. Okay. Um, but yeah, weirdly, uh, excuse me. I don't know why my voice just cracked. <laughs> <laughs> um, as a result, I guess I watched so much criterion stuff that I only have one movie on this list that I saw as a result of it being a relatively recent Blu-ray release. Sure. Uh, um, which if I just like counted down all the new to me, older movies that I watched uh, uh, this year, a lot of them would be uh, newish, you know, discs that were released in the last couple of years, but um, too many of those are criterion. Uh, oh, also, and I just, this is always my personal rule for any sort of discoveries list, um, 25 years uh, at least. So 1997 oh. or older is, yeah. is a, a, a year, a, 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 a rule that I put for myself. Um, weirdly, the only movie I think that really like came close to being on this list that was newer than 1997, and this is more of a surprise than a discovery, 
uh, Casey Lemon's The Caveman's Caveman's Valentine <laughs> was a movie okay. that I like. I remembered it coming out, and I remember it getting kind of panned um, for being like silly and overall, which it kind of is. Um, but uh, seeing it, especially seeing it at the Arrow on thirty-five millimeter, sure. like it was such a trip and is uh low key one of my favorite like now new favorite neo-noir films from that era because it's basically a noir film in which the lead character happens to be uh schizophrenic and and uh delusional (laughs) right on (laughs) i I mean i guess within that vein it it might be worth restating something i mentioned on the show before which is that i just tend not to watch movies from within the past five years that aren't part of like the current release year so once we get past a year, like that year's just closed to me for five years just because I'm sick of it. Um, <laughs> I've always so- wanted to do an episode about like, like have you, me and Tyler just go through our like weird self-imposed rules like that. But it's not even a rule for me. It's like right. a habit. Like I wouldn't like purposely not watch a movie. It's just like, I yeah. just don't care enough to want to watch a movie that recent. Um, but I do have the most recent movie I have on here is from 2008. Okay. Uh, well, I will start with a movie that I should have put 1991. Um, this is a movie that got a, um, I think from film movement, it got a, uh, a, a restoration and a brief theatrical, as often happens with the film movement restorations, they get a brief theatrical release. And then I sure. think there has since been a Blu-ray release or is come and This is so long ago. There must've been one right now, but, uh, 1991 Ang Lee's pushing hands. Um, never seen I had, it. Yeah, I had never seen it, uh, or really, it wasn't one of the early Angleys that were like on my radar uh, either. But um, it's so it's about a. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to remember because it's been almost a year since I watched it. I'm trying to remember where in. I think it's in New York State. I can't remember exactly where, but um, there's a. Chinese man who has come to America, married a, a white American woman, and then his father, who is now widow, a widower and retired, has come to move in with them, kind of against his will. So he's really the main character. Is this this um um this older man living with his son um and the wife that he does not like, and he's like it. it as often happens with the best Ang Lee movies, it walks a number of tonal lines that like it's like there's a version of this movie that's like a, you know, Chinese American version of grumpy old men. And it's not that he's not like a lovable cantankerous old man. He is like kind of a jerk, but also you sympathize with him because he's so sad and so out of his element, but also the movie doesn't like avoid, um, the the broad comedy of a grumpy old man type of thing there's he finally like starts to uh find his place in this world when he starts teaching tai chi classes that's where the term uh the title oh, comes sure. from push, pushing hands and he like meets another woman who it's like at the the chinese american cultural center or whatever he teaches tai chi classes and this other woman teaches like uh um dumpling making classes okay. and they have this like romance but also like the tai chi scenes are like really almost over the top funny of him, like almost getting to the point of like Wusha of him, like pushing someone and them going like, Whoa, like flying all the way across the room. Yeah. But the movie's also so like down to earth and, and, and bittersweet. And there's a, the, there's a sadness and a loneliness. I know you like, as you've said before, you like movies about lonely people. I sure um, do. 
and Ang Lee, when he's on on point, really gets that um, that sense of uh, sadness and and yearning. You know, if you look at anything from Propec Mountain to Sense of Sensibility, uh, the Ice Storm, like there's a lot of sadness and loneliness in in those movies. And so, pushing hands while fitting, checking the marks of like a kind of like broad family culture clash comedy, um, also has all of the other great. Ang Lee stuff. It was definitely, uh, I can't say every one of these is a, the whole point of this is it's a, this, <laughs> this episode is about discovery. So I can't say I had to teach, but I have to remind myself not to say every time, like it was a discovery for me. Yeah. That's the point. That's yeah. the episode. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely be intrigued to see it. I, I was looking at kind of the Ang Lee movies I had seen. I have seen the wedding banquet, which was the movie he made after, um, pushing hands. Okay. Um, and like that a great deal. I but I haven't seen drink man woman. I, I'm just trying to remember if I've seen Sense Sensibility. It's one I feel like I have, but I'm really not sure. Um, oh, yeah. I I, uh, I need to rewatch Sense and Sensibility because I don't know if you saw there was a thing going around Twitter a bit that was like, take this personality quiz and it will tell you what uh, okay. um, fictional characters you're most like. And like sure. it was like, post your top four. And mine was like, I was severely like owned by this because it was <laughs> like my top three were Waylon Smithers, um uh Cameron Fry from oh, Ferris sure. Bueller's Day Off, uh Lane Price from Mad Men. <laughs> and then my fourth one was um Alan Rickman's character from Sense and Sensibility, uh, oh. which I remember him being like the other one's kind of a stick in the mud. Sure. But I haven't seen Sense and Sensibility since I was in high school. So I need to watch it again to see like because I definitely I don't know about Waylon Smithers, but I definitely see myself in Cameron Fry and Lane Price uh so um i need to rewatch sense of ability to see if i see myself in alan mcman's character well you do like to play by the rules david as we know you have a lot of rules yes you, well you like to play by your own rules that's really what it comes down to yeah yeah all right yeah, that's true <laughs> my own rules that i make up and enforce upon myself and no one else exactly and uh it imposes order on my life but also gives me a severe amount of stress that is <laughs> in, in comprehensible to anyone else. That's, that's uh, very much. That's very lane price. Yeah. Many, many years of therapy have taught me to at least recognize all of these things. <laughs> if not actually do anything about them. <laughs> I try. Um, well, speaking of rules that you had that I did not have, I definitely uh, have a, a very famous movie. my 10th slot here. Um, but I'd never seen ordinary people before the famous Robert Redford, best picture winning, uh, film um we watched it as part of the mostly weekly movie night that uh, i do with our friends josh and megan um and it turned out a lot of us hadn't seen ordinary people and i'm really glad i did i'm glad that it took me this long to get around to it because i think like most young cinephiles i was like had a grudge against it for beating raging bull at the oscars or whatever i still like raging oh, bull right. a good deal more and still think it probably deserved it more but like ordinary people is an extraordinary movie and i don't know if i would have like given it the same chance if i saw it when i was like 18 or whatever um but it's kind of like real big drama stuff you know it's about a family dealing with the accidental death of one son the attempted suicide of another the other being kind of the film's main character mm-hmm. um has a great cast on Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, Judd Hirsch, Timothy Hutton, Elizabeth McGovern, Emma Walsh, among I'm sure others that I just got tired of typing and didn't note down my notes here. Um, and probably it's not, I was trying to look around if it was an influence on Kenneth Lonergan. It seems it, 
inescapable that it would be because it has almost exactly the same ending as like half of his stuff. Oh, but yeah. um, it's also got that same sense of being a very grounded story, but also having, you know, really elaborate dialogue and characters who have a very clear sense of who they are and how to discuss that, but also have a difficult time kind of connecting with one another over those understandings of themselves. And, but it's also super funny. I, I can't remember some of the lines that are really killing us, but um, it's just got a number of just stopping your tracks, laugh lines in the same way that like you can watch something like Manchester by the sea, which is like a devastating movie, but there'll still, there'll be tons of lines that are like yeah. the whole experience of watching it makes it feel funnier than a lot of comedies you go to see. Um, and this very much has that as part of it. Um, yeah. It, one number of Oscars, I think, best picture and screenplay, I imagine. Um, at least one acting award. Now I need to look it up. Um, all of which I totally get is well deserved. And I kind of want to now check out more Alvin Sargent written stuff as well, because I was looking at his filmography. I haven't seen a ton of it, but like the stuff that I have seen, um, obviously the Spider Man movie, total masterpiece. Um, but. Um, like he wrote Bobby Deerfield, which is this great late seventies Al Pacino starring melodrama that Sidney Pollock directed that I absolutely love. And I totally didn't connect the two until I was kind of looking at it all together. And now I, I kind of want to check out the rest of the stuff he did kind of in that same era. Um, and it made me respect, I think Robert Redford more as a director who I hadn't to that point thought too much of. I know you and Tyler are big quiz show fans. Yeah. Um, I started to watch quiz show many, many years ago, and it would probably be down to give it another shot. But I remember getting about 15 minutes in and being like, I don't know, it's just game shows. <laughs> like I couldn't like <laughs> make myself care about it. Uh. Um, and other than that, I think the only other Redford directed movie I've seen is lions for lambs, which is like, you know, kind of a big whiff. Um, but this got me more intrigued to kind of check out some other stuff. in his his own filmography. You're making me want to revisit ordinary people because, um, I went through, I liked it a lot. I loved it when I first saw it. Yeah. And then I think I got into this, you know, um, snobby thing of seeing, of, of seeing it as like overly, uh, I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, melodramatic in a bad way. Um, sure. In, in, but uh, now you make me want to go back and watch it. But I'll say the one thing about ordinary people that has always stuck with me that I've always loved is the cinematography by John Bailey. Um, oh, sure. and John Bailey, it seems to happen. If you like, look at the careers of cinematographers, like people will be like one of the big names in cinematography. And then kind of like, I don't know what happens. They get like Peter out. And so he like, I think he's retired now, but he like ended his career making like these sort of like, um, uh, crappy, like, uh, studio B movies, like big miracle and stuff like that. But at the time he was like ordinary people was going back and forth between like art house stuff. Like he shot Mishima a life in four chapters. Uh, he shot, um, a brief history of time, which is the, um, Daryl Morris documentary yeah. about uh, Stephen Hawking, but he was also doing like groundhog day, um, in the line of fire is another movie that looks great. Um, I don't know if you've seen that or when the last time you've seen it, but no, uh, in, the line, I, in the line of fire rules. I almost watched it, uh, sort of after Wolfgang Peterson died, but, um, mm. and I watched something else and then didn't get around to catching it. Uh, John Bailey also yeah. will, will insist that he shot, more of days of heaven than credit cinematographer Nestor Almondros. Oh. 
he like had a stopwatch out during a screening one time. I was like, yeah, I shot more of that movie <laughs> um, because that it was just a troubled production. It went on so long that they had to replace cinematographers. But Almandro still got the credit for it because he started out and kind of set the template for the movie. Um, but by the time they finished it, yeah, John Bailey had shot more of it. Yeah, I mean, that same year he shot American Gigolo. The same year as Ordinary mm-hmm. People, he shot American Gigolo for Paul Schrader. Um but yeah, that's that cinematographer arc you're talking about is very strange. I the biggest example I always think of is the fact that Vilmos Zygmunt and shooting 24 episodes of the Mindy Project, which um, <laughs> <laughs> is like I remember seeing his name pop up in like the first time that happened. I was like, wait, no, but who else would we name that and be a cinematographer? It seemed impossible. Yeah, I just don't know. Like, it's there's like it never happened to Roger Deakins. I don't think it ever really happened to Conrad Hall, but like a lot of these cinematographers, I don't know what happens. I don't know how they like, uh, I, I don't know. They're like, uh, they're like first wives. <laughs> <laughs> I also think, I don't know. I could see them also just getting to be really weird people who like can't exist on normal movie sets. And they relied on being on these like great auteurist visions that right. like had these troubled productions <laughs> and like they could only exist in that mode. And just to like, show up and work. Although Zygmunt did shoot a number of uh, Woody Allen movies, which is the ultimate like show up and work job. Right. Uh, all right. Um, we're doing 10 of these, so we probably shouldn't take yeah. this long with each one. Uh, my number nine won't take that long, but um, of all of the uh, Sydney Poitier vehicles that I saw in, in preparation for that profile episode that I did with Aaron Newworth almost a year ago, um, the biggest discovery for me was, uh, Guy Green's a patch of blue. I don't know who Guy Green is. I look at his filmography. I don't know. I mean, it's the only one of his movies I've ever seen. Um, but, uh, I think this one, um, got an Oscar nominee. I can't remember now. Uh, cause it's been a year since we talked about it, but, uh, um, it was nominated for five Oscars, five Oscars. To, and yeah, to be nominated for five Oscars and I guess win none, and then uh, I did win supporting actress for Shelley Winters. Oh, okay. She did win. Oh, that's yeah. great. Um, and I guess it's part, I guess part of a big part of this word discovery, uh, has to do with surprise. And so I'm watching all of these Sydney Poitier movies and so many of them are these like, and even the good ones are often these like, social issue driven like morality tales in which he has to represent like the um the 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 most moral and decent black man in the world or in the country at least yeah you know uh and patch of blue is a much more um down-to-earth character driven movie um in in which uh sydney party just plays a, a a man who lives it's been a year. I think he lives with his brother uh, in Los Angeles and uh, befriends in MacArthur Park, um, which that's another great thing about Apache Blue is that like, it's like um, MacArthur Park, like Alvarado, like that, like that neighborhood as it existed. And it's all this location photography along Alvarado and in the park. And um, it's a really cool, like document of, um, a part of Los Angeles that has gone through a lot of changes in the time since this movie. Um, yeah. Uh, but, um, 
Uh, so he he just cuts to the park every day, or he have his, has his lunch in the park every day, and he meets this blind girl, um, and sort of becomes friends with her, and then sort of we we sort of we get a picture of her home life, uh, which is not like uh, um, shined up movie version of like a dysfunctional family. It's like. Mm. Shelly Winters is like plays a just a truly awful mother figure to this the uh, to to this woman like the the reason that this is a minor spoiler the reason the girl is blind is because Shelly Winters blinded her oh wow um, not on purpose but like threw a glass at her face and blinded her when she was a girl and that's the kind of life that she lives it uh she lives so um i i i think um i found so much of this movie to be and i guess this is going back to what i was saying about surprise like so much of it is feels not programmatic feels instinctive um and and feels uh curious about the characters as opposed to like instructing the audience about the characters uh that that um yeah i'll say it again this was a a big surprise that's why it's on the list all right um i wasn't taking note of its other nominations and it was during a brief three-year period where Jerry Goldsmith could be nominated for Best Music Score, Substantially Original. I'm very unclear as to what the <laughs> delineation there. Oh, yeah. Is either You could either compete for that or adaptation or treatment. So, like, okay. the same year that was nominated, uh, The Sound of Music won for Best yeah. Score because it's you know, at least semi-adapted. Interesting. Oscars are weird as hell. All right, yeah. my number nine, switching genre gears big time, uh, going with 1998's Wild Things. You ever seen Wild Things, David? Never saw it. So Wild Things is obviously most famous for uh, its rampant nudity and sex scenes, which actually aren't as plentiful as you might expect, given its reputation. Um, oh. They're there, and they're like clearly very uh, proud of themselves and like laying it all out there for you. But it's not the key like drive of the movie. And there's not like, they're not kind of shoehorned okay. in at every turn the way that I kind of expected going into it. It's mostly just like a really good rip roaring, very complex, densely plotted constant twist and turns thriller to the point that it seems to run out of road to explain its twists and turns and literally has a sequence of scenes during the credits that fill in the gaps that it couldn't fill in during the course of the actual movie um so this is just like packed to the gills pure pulp plotting and it's really well told really well performed by kevin bacon matt dillon nev campbell and denise richards most prominently and uh Sporting cast kind of filled up by Teresa Russell, Robert Wagner, and Bill Murray, um, all of whom know exactly the kind of movie they're in and are very happy to make this, like, I don't know, super saturated, like, neon Florida set, super pulpy film that is, yeah, at various turns, sexy as hell. Um, So I've been trying to catch up with more of these kind of, like, 90s erotic thrillers, some of which are more respectable than others. This falls in the rare camp where like i have zero um i guess intellectual uh defense of it the way i do for like basic instinct or fatal attraction Mm -hmm. which i think like get at some real human shit amidst their uh naughtiness wild things is just like a pure pleasure to watch and totally totally rips 
All right. Um, I should, I should put it on my list. Uh, not this list, this list I just made, by the way. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I keep a list of like, you know, old movies that I watched for the first time, but, uh, establishing the ground rules, everything laid out i i did finishing talking this right i i'm wondering if my next part of the reason why my next movie is on the list is because i happen to have watched phil tippett's mad god last night mm. um which is amazing by the way and in a weird way it kind of reminded me of a movie i'd seen for the first time this year that a lot of people in america uh well not that a lot of people saw it but most of the people who saw it in america this year saw it for the first time because it had never been released here before it's a 1984 romanian animated movie called delta space mission uh which uh it's a it's in many ways it it feels like it's cashing in on 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 something this sort of like uh it's clearly inspired by fantastic um what is it? Fantastic planet. Um, that's the animated one, right? I was getting, yeah. Fantastic voyage is where they get shrunk down. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's clearly inspired by fantastic planet, but it also just like this post star Wars, like space is cool type of, uh, thing is clearly the reason it exists. But sometimes, you know, uh, when there's not a lot of budget, split, uh, filmmakers can go a little wild with what uh, their uh, with their meager means, and that seems to be what happened in some ways. With uh, the directors are Kalen Kazan and Mercia Toya. Um, I'm probably saying that both of those wrong. Um, but the the plot of the story of the movie, to the uh, to the extent that it even matters, uh, is that it takes place on a new intergalactic spaceship, or just a, a fancy, like very expensive new spaceship uh, that's meant to contact aliens and um a journalist who's skeptical of the waste of resources or whatever has um been sent to the ship or has has gotten herself onto the ship to to sort of write an investigative journalist piece about it but uh as soon as pretty much the second she steps on the ship this movie's only 70 minutes and it wastes no time pretty much the second she's on the ship the ai that runs the ship becomes sentient falls in love with her and spends the rest of the movie chasing her through like alien lands and through the its own the bowels of the own of its own ship and stuff and it just has this like non-stop breakneck for momentum and all in this like kind of psychedelic uh uh animation style um that i feel like we don't you know pixar's wrought a lot of things i like a lot of (laughs) pixar movies but they've wrought a lot of things that i that i um don't that, that i rue which is one of them is it just seems like there's pretty much just one basic established look that animated movies are supposed to have now and it the Pixar movies tend to have a lot of fast motion, but they don't t- because I think they were so from the beginning, so intent on how realistic they could be with their CGI that we've lost some of the psychedelic logic you, you get from older cartoons like, like fantastic planet, but also like, like early Popeye cartoons are so strange. I know. Like, I love them. They have bodies doing things you can't do and like in fantastic or not sorry delta space mission kind of 
reminded me of of that like that sense of of pre-pixar animation where or, or maybe pre-disnification whatever you want to call it where like the point of it being animated was that anything could happen <laughs> um and and uh, i found the movie just such a blast to watch it's also clearly because this is during the like communist era of romania it's also like clearly like uh like propagandistic in some ways like a lot of the dialogue from the the agents or the space officers or cadets or whatever yeah. is them like congratulating one another on having followed protocol. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what a delight. And it's uh, there's a, there's a new ish um, company called deaf crocodile that has been like, uh, um, I don't know if they're doing their masking themselves or just handling the distribution, uh, but the stuff that they've, been putting out has been weird stuff like this. There was an awesome movie I saw this year called The Unknown Man of Shane DeGore, uh, which is uh, another weird, weird delight. But uh, Delta Space Mission takes the cake for the Deaf Crocodile movies that I saw. <laughs> what a sentence. Um, yeah, no, it's it's not one I'm familiar with at all. I don't even think I'd heard of it before right now, but now I'm super intrigued. I'm looking at some stills from it too. All right. Um, my number eight. Um, so in terms of like, my, most of the main films on my list are pretty mainstream because I've been trying to fill in more mainstream stuff. And one of those mm-hmm. is the only Clint Eastwood movie that I did not see in theaters between the years 2003 to 2021. Um, and that is uh, 2008's Changeling um, starring Angelina Jolie. And I am generally a fan of both Angelina Jolie and Clint Eastwood. Um, so I was kind of like ashamed of myself for having not seen this. Um, it's really, really great. Um, so it's uh, adapted from a true story um, by screenwriter J. Michael Straczynski, who's like more famous for like science fiction stuff, interestingly. So I don't really know what exactly drew him to this project, but I know he wrote, hmm. he did like an unbelievable amount of research. I can't remember ex- like the details of it, but I... Um, I was just reading this like making of production stuff on wiki after seeing the movie several months ago and yeah he like completely got completely invested in this um whereas like clint eastwood probably like read the script the day before shooting and went to work on it because that's how he works <laughs> but um eastwood's always got a lot of very thoughtful consideration about how he films things and also a certain ruthlessness to it both of which are very necessary for the story it's about a woman whose um son goes missing she is a single mother and has to work for a living and so she leaves him at home one day when she has to go on to her job and when she gets back he is gone the regular person who would kind of babysit him couldn't show up or something like that there's some series of circumstances and she was like okay i'll only be gone for a couple of hours how much could really happen to him and sure enough she gets home and he's missing and after several months of um sort of petitioning the police department to really search for the kid. They do deliver her a child who is not hers, but who the police department insists is hers. And they kind of convince her for at least the first few minutes when she meets him that like, maybe it's just your shock passage of time. You don't recognize him, et cetera. So they get her in there long enough to um, take a photo with the press and um, kind of make a good show of it. And then she spends the next several months and indeed if i recall correctly even years trying to correct that wrong um to the point where the uh police eventually throw her in an asylum to try to shut her up 
Um, and it's all wrapped up in surprise, surprise movie set in 1928. But yes, even then the LAPD was super corrupt and, um, if not more so, if not more so. And indeed, like most of their efforts were just trying to like save their own image because they'd been getting such bad press. They're like, well, if we can show that we found this woman's kid, then it'll all go away and just made life worse, worse for themselves. Um, she, I remember up, real quick, just to, yeah. sorry to interject, but, um, yeah. I don't know if you've ever taken an esoteric tour. Um, it's a tour company in Los Angeles. Oh, no, I know of it, though. It's really specific. Anyway, during one, uh, the tours that I went on, they said something like, we often get asked as LA historians, like, why didn't LA have the mob the way that New York and <laughs> Chicago did? And they're like, not even really joking. They're like, we had the LAPD. Yeah. Like, that kind of was the organized crime of of that era. Yeah. Um, so she ends up teaming up with uh, a reverend played by John Malkovich, who's kind of been on the fore of trying to take down the LAPD or at least um, get them to answer for their various sins uh, that he can. And uh, he helps kind of bring public attention to her case. And that's kind of why it became like a kind of a legendary case that they ended up making a movie about um, the eventual unraveling of what happened to the kid gets pretty gruesome but that's where i mean that like clint eastwood is not shy about that aspect of the story either this is far from a sentimental story um but it's very heartfelt and honest and very very moving in its telling and it's kind of during that period where angelina jolie was at her peak i think in terms of her commercial potential but was also taking like a lot of really interesting daring roles um and it was kind of like a good capper on that period um and which i, sh- I wish she would return to more i mean i'm a huge by the sea fan and that was kind of like her last mm-hmm. big kind of great acting work that i at least that i've seen i mean those who wish me dead was like whatever um but other than that it's like she's mostly just doing like kind of family movies but um yeah just a really stellar modern melodrama that has a lot of uh spine behind it uh all right next up for me um this was a restoration um that i think has has since been released on blu-ray but it was um put out by kino lorber i think of a 1994 american movie by director aoka shinzira it's called alma's rainbow and this is a uh it's a coming of age story it's at um it it's set in the time that you know 1994 um uh about a girl who is raised by a single mom who is a like a beauty shop owner i think um okay but she has uh much like emma stone in la la land she has an aunt who's an eccentric <laughs> actress type um and she's clearly pulled a little more in that direction, not necessarily acting, but she wants to dance. She has like a dance crew uh, where she's the only girl in a three person um, dance crew. Uh, and so it's, you know, she's pulled between these various um, or, or these two main like uh, female uh, uh, role models Um so I, you know, that, that sort of like, I want to do this, but my mom wants me to do this is like a pretty standard kind right. of age type of thing, you know, just like, um, in Coda or whatever, but, uh, there's something, um, so boldly and so specifically, uh, about women and about black women specifically in, in this movie that it, it has such a strong point of view and such a strong 
look mm. in terms of uh, its lighting, and especially it, the costumes are fantastic, and and the way that they, um, it's almost like uh, I don't know, Comedia dell'arte in the way that like you can tell so much by the people by each character um, based on the way they dress. Uh, but they're fantastic costumes. They they look uh, they they look great. There's um, a lot of very frank um, uh, talk about sex in both ways. There's you know um, I can't remember the main character's name. It's not Elma. Elma is oh Rainbow is the main character. That's right. And Elma is her mom. That's right. Okay. That's oh. where the that's where the movie gets gets its title. So um, like Rainbow is. There's a whole plot line that she is, as we tend to say euphemistically, developing. Uh, and she doesn't want to be seen like that, doesn't want to look that we looked at uh uh like that. So there's a lot of like um uh stuff about her trying to cover up and wear baggy clothes. Um on the other end though, you've got the beauty shop where there's I can't remember if he's a handyman or a delivery guy, but basically it's this beauty shop where I obviously all the employees and all the are black women and they just like there's these great scenes of them sharing and and talking but then it becomes almost like uh, uh exaggeratedly comedic when this one guy um uh shows up every once in a while and and every woman just like cannot keep it in their pants <laughs> just like it's uh, every 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 woman is struck uh so horny by this this one guy that it's 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 funny so you you, you get sort of both ends of uh the spectrum of of uh um sexuality uh in the movie so uh yeah i'm trying to avoid saying it was a surprise or a discovery but there you go <laughs> it's out there now i'm sure you can you could probably rent it somewhere but i know there's a blu-ray out there now nice um my number seven uh getting into some art house cred rubber brisson's the devil probably um oh i've he- seen this one American Cinematheque through the Los Feliz, um, mostly in a little bit of the Arrow, did a gigantic, really admirable Brisson retrospective that unfortunately coincided with me having to stay in New York an extra week. Um, so I wanted to catch most of the uh, retrospective, but I was only able to catch this one, but I'm really glad I did. Um, this was made a few years after Four Nights of a Dreamer and a couple of years before L'Argent. Um, both of which I think I like a little bit more than this, but it's very much of that same like piece of like a portrait of nihilism, obsession, and aimlessness among like I would put this people. one in between the two. Okay. Put Four Nights of a Dreamer first, then this, then Largent. Interesting. Um but it's kind of similarly like tackling like just the hopelessness of being young in like broadly i guess you could say capitalist society or just kind of like a general dead-end system where there's not a lot of future there um and so there's a reason why movies like this have lasted because a lot of young people feel the exact same way today mm-hmm. um and in some ways it's just like the nature of being a certain age of getting out into the world and trying to fit into the system but discovering how unjust and ruthless the that real life can be um and yeah i put in this note jeho run described with one sentence a dostoevskin dostoevskin story of a tormented soul presented in a style as manager of medieval illumination which is very on point um the cinematech showed this on film and it looked fantastic it has that kind of like almost holy lighting to it where 
everything seems a little bit unreal and kind of fits in well with Brisson's style of directing actors um, in terms of staging them and asking for very little in the way of expression. And so uh, the lighting and the place the images fall into the story does most of the storytelling for it. And there's something about the like um, monotonous dialogue readings that kind of like speak to the way that these people feel like a little um, like they're just going through the motions of life and not really having any effect on it. While at the same time, like the main character is like this total like ladies band womanizer who like is able to like land every chick. Yeah. Um, then there's also this like great scene where like, I can't remember the details of it, but they're on a bus and like different people on the bus are like speaking different sections of kind of a spoken word thing. That's very cool. And so it falls in like, as with most person stuff, a really interesting rhythm that kind of like develops even a larger artistic purpose than um, the specific aims of the story. And yeah, uh, I don't know that I have any other notes about it, but yeah, I was really glad that I finally got around to seeing it. It was obviously like, besides just generally loving Brisson and wanting to see more of his films, the title was always one that attracted me. Um, the mm-hmm. devil comma probably is a very catching title. Um, and yeah, so I'm really glad I got around to seeing it. Uh, I saw this uh, years and years ago at LACMA Hmm. on a double. uh, It was the second part of a double bill with Phantom of Liberty. Oh, weird. Yeah, right. But I guess they're like same era of French. Maybe the movie was a part of some like retrospective of like early 70s France. I can't remember exactly what it was, Uh, but I do miss seeing movies at LACMA. Well, Um, I mean, now that the Academy Museum is there. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, just down yeah. the block from where that used to be and like yeah. better seating. Cause like those seats at the Bing were always a little uncomfortable. And it's like that kind of break seating where you get the wrong head in front of you, your night's ruined. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, that's actually where I first saw um, Four Nights of a Dreamer. Kind of speaking of oh, yeah. Blackma. Um, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I, cool stuff. Oh, yeah. They showed great stuff. But like the Academy Museum is, unbelievably great programming if you haven't been there yet gotta gotta check it out no i still haven't actually all right um next up for me i've been kind of dreading this one because it's um one of those movies that's uh uh, i'm not gonna be able to really fall back on talking about the plot much um uh, because that's not the kind of movie it is really uh it's called dream life it's from 1972 a dream life or la vie rêvée uh it's written by Mireille dansero um and this what this restoration was presented by uh Arbelos, who were uh very reliable and put out a lot of cool stuff um and uh this was the first uh, if i'm if i'm buying on the ad, the ad copy this was <laughs> the uh first feature directed by a quebecois woman first first female directed french canadian uh feature film is that how um, you say that quebecois Quebecois. I'm sure you're right. It's just like, how would you say it? <laughs> I think I'd always said like, cause I hadn't, I, I think the first time I encountered that word, I hadn't really thought of Quebec as like a French speaking province or whatever. So I was probably like going like, Oh, Quebecois or whatever. Yeah. No. Cause they don't say Quebec. It's, it's Quebec. Right. That's how you say it. And so I think you would say Quebecois. You're probably think, right. You know what? Uh, French Canadians. Let me know if I'm saying it right. Quebecois. Um, uh, anyway, this was also, this was weirdly like a, um, 
uh, a strong year for early or early features from Canadian women because uh, Patrick, Patricia Rosem is, yeah, Patricia Rosem is, uh, I've heard the mermaid singing um, also got uh, uh, restored, I think by Kino Lorber this year um, and uh, saw that for the first time. Um, and that's also really great. Uh, came very close to making this list today, actually, but this uh, year I'm still like avoiding trying to actually talk about what dream life is about. <laughs> it's about two women, young women who work, for a, for a film production company that makes like commercials. Okay. Um, but they want to make something else. They want to live in their dreams and they want to uh, make films or make art that allows them to, to live in their dreams. And so some of the movie seems to actually take place in their, in their fantasies. A lot of it is about them imagining the perfect man. Um, that, but that's one of those things. Like uh, if you read any like log line of the movie, it's like about, two young women try to imagine the perfect man. And it's like, yeah, that's part of the movie, but like, it's weird. It's, it's always seems to be presented as if it's the main thrust. I mean, maybe those people who are writing those little log lines have the same problem I did. It's such a hard movie <laughs> to like put into words. And let's, let's just latch onto this one thing about them, uh, fantasizing about the perfect man and trying to realize him in their art and their dreams, uh, and make that the story. But, um, it's really about, as the title suggests, it's about, um, the, desire to live outside of reality, live in your dream world and um, the pursuit of making things that allow you and others to do that, but also the kind of realization that you're only ever going to get so far mm. with, with doing that, that reality is always going to be there and going to uh, uh, there's going to be times you're going to have to be snatched away from your dream, your dream life. Um, uh, so yeah, a, a worthy, um, uh, uh, a worthy restoration presented by Arbelos, who also, speaking of female directed movies that barely made, barely missed this list, uh, Arbelos also released um, restorations of a couple of early Nina Menke's films. And I almost put The Bloody hmm. Child on, on this list. I don't know if you've seen The Bloody Child, Scott, but I think you would not. I think, I think you would dig it. It's, it's a movie that is like based on a true story about. Um, I think an army or some sort of military officer who murdered, who murdered his own wife on the base. But most of the movie is just like the way more like military police than are needed show up at the crime scene where the dead body is and spend most of the movie just like milling around and shooting the shit. <laughs> it's such a strange movie and I really loved it. But uh, there, I, I snuck in another one, but dream life was my number, whatever we're on. Six? Yeah. Uh, Six. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, I was hoping because Herbalist does sometimes post stuff to Canopy. I was hoping this movie might be have been on there, but it is not. Um, I actually don't think it's out yet on Blu-ray because it only just played the restoration just played actually last month at the Cinematheque. Um, oh, okay. And might still be touring around, but doesn't have any future dates noted. Huh? Yeah. I'll be very interested to see it. Well, the bloody child is on canopy. I just confirmed that. Hey, so, there you go. Well, hopefully go. dream life will be eventually then too. Yeah. Um, all right. My number six, getting back into the mainstream. I had never seen and had long been desiring to see Notting Hill. So I finally saw Notting Hill. Loved it. Um, not only as like a really stellar romantic comedy, it's very funny. It's very sweet. Um, it has kind of, it, as fond as I am of romantic comedies, they sometimes go a little too hard with the endings of like, 
showing just how ecstatically happy and that they will definitely be together forever. And you have expected to like, end with them dying at the same time on their deathbeds kind of thing. Like I also saw 13 going on 30 this year, which like the victory could well enough have been them getting together, but it has to go to like flash forward to their wedding. It's like, no, don't worry guys. This isn't just a flash <laughs> in the pan. They also got married. Notting Hill like does that same thing, but it it's ending like loops back in with like stuff they'd already discussed in the course of the movie and has this like amazing tracking shot, but that's jumping ahead to the ending. What really um, made it land for me, I think beyond being an excellently executed romantic comedy is that it's also kind of like a really good portrait of dependency and that feeling of being the one who's more attached to the other person and just of Mm -hmm. constantly giving over your life to somebody you're in love with who like reciprocates you in feeling but maybe not in terms of commitment and how like isolating that becomes for hugh grant's character how it like cuts him off from friends and potential other romantic interests and it, in some ways it's like a romantic comedy take on um the Mogham novel of human bondage which is like one of, one of our favorite books um and it's very much about like that book is much more about the extent to which someone goes through um and just destroying his life in pursuit of this woman who doesn't care for him which doesn't say that julia roberts doesn't care for hugh grant of course she does but um she has larger concerns in terms of maintaining her career it's part of a large string of movies around this period where julia roberts just was playing julia roberts and not in like the star way people always say that like tom hanks always plays tom hanks it's like literally the movie wouldn't work if we didn't associate all these things with julia roberts and was like kind of playing against that image as well um this is probably the best iteration of it i mean i haven't seen full frontal which is like i think the more direct one but um uh, between this and oceans 12 and to a certain extent like america's sweethearts does this too um this was a really smart integration of that uh whole thing and i think is also just well cut out with general portrait of um friend groups in their 30s trying to like cement their lives and trying to like get something going um and trying to figure out the next stage of where they're going to be at in the next few years um so yeah just on many many levels i really really loved it um and i've never been hugely fond of richard curtis i know you're a big for uh for weddings or funeral i'm getting the right number right? yeah um I, i'm not as big on that movie but um this one really brought me back around um well I mean, that's interesting because interesting four weddings i think also one of its big strengths is its portrait of a friend group um uh in in that case um all incredibly wealthy and uh, right. <laughs> mean to mean to each other. I've said that my line that I've said multiple times is seen from a different angle. Four weddings and a funeral is a Whit Stillman movie. Uh, sure. um, but uh, uh, yeah, I haven't seen Notting Hill in a long time, but RIP to Roger Michelle, the director who passed yeah. away in 2021, I think. Um, but yeah, I got a very interesting filmography, some, some real winners and some real odd ones out in that filmography as well. Uh, all right. Moving on to my number five. We're in the second half of the episode now. Um, I mentioned before I used the term bad melodrama, but if you want good melodrama, you know to look no further than Douglas Sirk. So I watched a... Uh, this came out almost ago now, I think, uh, but it was a Kino Lohrer, uh Blu-ray, double set Blu-ray of two German Douglas Sirk movies, like pre before him leaving the Nazis. Uh, it was 
to New Shores and La Habanera, which I think you said you've seen La Habanera. I didn't I have, like that yeah. one. I didn't like La Habanera very much, to to be honest. But um, I really liked To New Shores, uh, which is the story of. Uh, I mean, it's a German movie, and everyone's speaking German, but the characters are English. Um, and there's a uh, an English military officer who doesn't really come from means uh but he's in love with a sort of cabaret singer slash actress uh and he's about to be shipped off to australia when that's still like a you know english i mean i guess it's still part of the commonwealth or whatever but you know it's very much a colony um right penal colony at that uh, at that time um and he's being shipped off there and before he leaves he steals like three hundred dollars which is a lot more money back then uh from his rich friend by like forging a check um and then goes off to australia and then the woman he's in love with when she finds out what he did she steps up and said it was her who did it to like save him from uh uh being you know what do they call it uh, discharged and, and mm-hmm. court-martialed and all this stuff. But then she ends up going to prison and not only does she go to prison, she gets sent to the penal colony of Australia. So the real meat of the movie happens when this officer finds out that the woman he supposedly loves is in prison right next door because she took the fall for him and he has to decide between do I love this woman enough that I will save her or do I, uh, let her take the fall and, uh, <laughs> uh, get out with my skin intact. And, um, the decision is far more difficult for him than, uh, you know, romance movie viewers would generally expect. Sure. It's, it's, it's it, the movie is full of melodrama, but it's not really a, a romance. It's more kind of a, uh, uh, condemnation of this, like, uh, uh, um striver this ambitious uh, uh striver type of uh uh i'm trying to think there's a number of characters like this in in movies like tom ripley or whatever who like mm. come from nothing and will stop stop at nothing to achieve something even if it means hurting other people so uh i'm sure like politically there's probably something about the english that the <laughs> the germans were saying at the time you know but uh i don't really know all of all of that history <laughs> sure. but uh it's just a just um i'd never seen i've never seen now i've seen two but i'd never seen any of douglas sirk's german works and uh um to new shores is definitely the, the best two did you like la habanera uh not particularly um the okay, <laughs> the movie from this period the only other movie from this period i've seen of his um is called final chord though and it that's fantastic okay um and i think you know put that out recently as well um okay. so yeah i, I want to pick up that just to have it and then um the two new shorts i just have just to give that a shot because i'm very curious about that and see yeah kino's been on a really good streak of releasing early german work by filmmakers who then went on to do stuff in america i I think they've got um a handful of silent lubich films as well that um have otherwise not been available um i have they released um many years ago uh a silent german movie that lenny riefenstahl is the star of hmm. um not the director uh 
I think it's called the Holy Mountain, but don't get it confused with the uh, what's his name. Uh, <laughs> the, oh, Jodorowsky. Yeah, don't get confused with him. Yeah. All right, I'll try. All right, to. sorry. Uh, your number five, please. Yeah, my number five is Bugsy, the Barry Levinson Warren Beatty. Oh yeah, joint. Uh, this is a Tyler and David fave. Yeah, I, twenty dwarves. I, twenty dwarves took turns doing <laughs> handstands on the carpet. I'm coming to light the candles. That scene. <laughs> so okay, so it's like a biopic of Bugsy Malone, the gangster. Um, I didn't even look that up. His, that is his last name, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, that so Warren Beatty been wanting to make the movie based on his life. Wait, for no, a while. it's Bugsy Siegel. Yes, thank you. I, I was like, sorry. Bugsy Malone is the um, like kids gangster movie, right? Yes, you're right. <laughs> um, yeah, Bugsy Siegel is his name. Bugsy Malone is yeah, yeah. Jodie Foster and young Scott Bayo. Yeah, being little kid gangsters, which is another fun movie. <laughs> which I actually haven't seen that. But, oh, uh, man, it's yeah. a blast. Um, but I guess Bugsy like you Siegel, corrected yeah. me on whatever I said earlier. No, I, I appreciate that. I and say, yeah, didn't no. want to, uh, I didn't want to just leave that hanging. Um, so yeah, it's a biopic of his life. Um, his kind of like big legend is he was one of the founders of Las Vegas, which the movie definitely plays into. If you really look into that, he apparently like wasn't, um, as like yeah, I have really into that, that yeah. but it makes for like great imagery of just them building this casino in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it's just got a stacked cast. Um, and that Benning is in it. That's where she and Beatty met. Um, apparently he saw her audition, probably not audition tape. They might've actually filmed it and was like, I love her. I'm going to marry her. And <laughs> James Toback who wrote the screenplay was like, I didn't think he was actually going to marry her. Um, <laughs> but it's got her in it. She's amazing. Uh, Harry Root Cocktail, Ben Kingsley, Elliot Gould playing like the saddest Elliot Gould. Usually he's much like happier and uh savvier guy here. Yeah, he's like, he a is. big dumb yeah. lug, but he's so good in it. Um, and yeah, it just plays into um, that, like, yeah, no, go ahead. Um, am I, it's been a long time since I've watched it, but Ben single Ben, sorry, Ben Kingsley is, uh, Meyer Lansky, right? Uh, that feels right offhand. I didn't take note of character names. Um, but I think, wasn't there a more recent movie where Harvey Keitel played Meyer Lansky? Oh gosh. Weird, uh, coincidence there. Yeah. Um, but it's very much like a continuation of like the key Warren Beatty theme, which is like, whatever you might say about Beatty's more overt politics in real life, his like thesis in film is that whoever is in charge, America is just a very weird place run by the weirdest people who are in many regards, very stupid. And like the fact that Beatty really understands his screen persona, I think better than a lot of stars do because he understands that he's at his best when he's a little doofy. Um, it's the kind of thing that like, I wish Ben Affleck understood a little bit better about himself because like so many of the films, especially the ones he directs himself in Ben Affleck's like so much the man, but Ben Affleck's at his best when he's being a doof. And if he just take, took the Warren Beatty <laughs> model, he'd be like so much further along. Um, but Beatty, like, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's, solid comfort to like have bedded more women than any other man in america <laughs> like <laughs> then you could just like be a doof on screen and not have to like big make a big show of being a star all the time but the fact that he you know throughout his career was constantly willing to just be the dumbest guy in the room is so great um but yeah that that scene that i alluded to the like i'm going to light the candle scene so it's this big like amalgamation of concerns in bugsy's life where like he and ignoring his family for too long there's some business interests that have literally come to his door to like get settled and he's trying to balance all these things you know and put on his daughter's birthday party and it is like pound for pound 
if I were to make like a top 10 scenes of all time in cinema history, this, that scene might make it because it's so relentlessly funny and like nerve wracking in a weird way. Like if you've ever been, I mean, we've all been in situations where like, we're trying to balance so many things in our lives just generally and have it all condensed in this one scene that goes on like just a little bit too long, but in the best way. Um, I just, I could not stop laughing at that scene and it was so well constructed um directed by barry levinson um whose work i don't know that i'm like a gigantic barry levinson fan or anything probably very hit or miss for me if i were to really look at his filmography um and it was one that apparently Beatty like was afraid he would have to direct himself because he couldn't find anybody to kind of take the job but um really kind of came together in the best way um i saw this on 35 at the los filas looked great great afternoon at the movies uh all right um next up for me okay so uh i have long been a big fan of the movie the fabulous baker boys oh sure uh and for some reason i don't know why i just never thought to go on imdb and look it up i was the only movie that steve clovis had directed that he just went back to screenwriting and became like the harry potter most of the harry potter movies it never occurred to me that he had directed a second movie um uh but i luckily um i guess luckily for me james con passed away and it gave me a reason to uh <laughs> watch some james con movies and so 1993 i think 1993's flesh and bone um is uh, an incredible discovery um as a as a I mean, I, I used the word neo-noir earlier. This is another like a uh, sort of rural neo-noir. Um, uh, one of the oh, very few movies that Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan made together. Um, uh, obviously there's inner space and there's this, is there one other? I feel like there's one other that I'm missing. Oh God, I couldn't tell you offhand. But anyway, um, but I think they, did they, they met making inner space, right? Am I right? on that uh that that story right i think i remember reading that because they showed that in a recent tcm fest and so i read up on it that feels right um where was it so i've i've said it like if i've described this baker boys as being like a tom Waits song come to life so i guess flesh and bone is maybe like a chris christopherson song or a Tom van zant song uh come to life uh dennis quaid uh, well, the movie starts when Dennis Quaid is a boy and James Conn is his father, who's a uh, criminal who um, uh, his his thing is that he gets his son to play uh, a lost kid who gets taken in by families. And then the kid, once all the families are asleep, helps James Conn you know, clean their house out while they're asleep of all their like valuables and, and stuff. So it starts with that. And then it flashes to the present, you know, the 1993 present where Dennis Quaid has, has gone straight and is just living this life where he is in charge of, uh, he owns a company that, um, places vending machines and, uh, uh, you know, condom machines and all kinds of stuff in various like restaurants and truck stops and gas stations all over the like most rural possible parts of like North Texas. I can't remember exactly where, um, it's supposed to take place. So it's very much, a a, you know, a a neo-Western and a neo-noir. Uh, and then he meets this young woman played by Meg Ryan, who is, uh, running away from her abusive husband. And they kind of like, take up together and, and she just joins him on the road. Uh, 
uh, that's the fun part of the beginning. Then James Conn comes back and he's like, um, and then all the movies, even when James Conn, I think we talked about this on the James Conn episode, even when he'd play like criminals before it's, there's not that many movies where he plays the bad guy, you know? Sure. I mean like Dogville, obviously he's pretty, uh, when he, when he shows up, but he's a mean son of a bitch in <laughs> flesh and bone. And it's a great, he's clearly having a blast playing it. Um, but also this is, this is Meg Ryan absolutely at the height of her, of her powers, um, as well. And just, uh, so Steve Clovis is like flowery, but not in a, an annoying or self-congratulatory way dialogue mixed with, uh, Dennis Quaid, Meg Ryan and James Caan, all kind of playing like various archetypes. Um, oh, I also didn't mention the other, like the fourth leg of the table, uh, actor wise, a very young Gwyneth Paltrow plays a, uh, a young con artist who, uh, who ends up, uh, sort of, I guess in the modern day se- segment, like James Conn tries to take her under his wing. So she becomes like the replacement for Dennis Quaid, but she's maybe got some tricks up her sleeve, uh, uh, of, of her own, uh, just a delightful, like just whiskey soaked genre, uh, movie with, uh, a quartet of great uh, American movie stars at their height. Excellent. Yeah, yeah I, I, it. I think it's on it. Paramount Plus. I think it's actually on Amazon Prime as well. For oh, maybe that's where I saw it. Services saw it. that people actually subscribe to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, uh, Star Trek Discovery fans and the Good Fight fans uh, might disagree with you. Um, no, I think weirdly Paramount Plus is like disproportionately subscribed to compared to like cultural relevance because it has like Yellowstone. Yellowstone. Yeah. Yeah, The most watched TV show in America. Yeah. Major dad show. And so that all the dads in America figured out how to sign up for Paramount plus. Yeah. (laughs) Yellowstone. Um, Yeah. I remember you talking about the con episode and I wanted to see it and I forgot about it. And now I'm glad to have the reminder. So glad it made that big an impression. Yeah. Um, My number four uh is the only film i saw in a retrospective that both went on in new york and la because janice films uh kind of organized it and was able to distribute it to several theaters across the country um despite so i was in new york and la for both uh retrospectives but i only managed to catch one film between the two uh it's called the moon has risen uh directed by kinyo tanaka as a retrospective of all the films that she directed um being the only i think uh female director who made more than like one film in this period in japan is from 1955 um so comparable situation to like ida lupino in the u.s or jacqueline audrey in france of being like the one woman working in the studio system in all these cases all these women were also actresses which is like the only way they could get a career no. that big that high like, like when they reference tall it's just like Lenny results. There's no difference between those situations. Um, this I'm really glad I caught this film though. Um, it's got a screenplay by Yasujiro Ozu, um, co-written by anyway. Um, and like a lot of his films, it's about people making marital arrangements for a young woman who's also just trying to figure out her own life. Um, unlike those films, uh, the lead 
the main female characters are a lot uh, spikier and more lively. Um, it's not like the women who are very resigned to their place in life. They very much have opinions on what they want to be doing with their lives and very like loud, boisterous personalities. And just, it was very enjoyable to see a different side of Japanese society than you would see in an Ozu or let alone like a Naruse or um, a Mizuguchi movie, which are even more downbeat than Ozu's films. Um, just to see you know, ordinary people falling in love. It's a very sweet, very romantic movie. It kind of takes a turn towards more overt melodrama towards the end, which um, is somewhat of a kind of tonal departure, but um, enough, there'd been enough kind of goodwill built up with the characters that I was kind of willing to follow them anywhere by that point in the movie. And yeah, I'm really excited to check out the rest of her films. I'm hoping that they'll come to the Criterion channel at some point because Janice had put them out. Um and super glad that I caught this. I, it was a, just a digital retrospection, which usually I don't, you know, roll out for DCPs. But um, as I told Julie on the way to the movie, like sometimes you just got to roll out because the only time I can be sure I'll carve out time for it, streaming just becomes like an endless pit of constantly trying to keep, catch up with things. But um, yeah, really glad that Janice is putting this out and that there's just enough conversation around female directors that like this otherwise mm -hmm. minor figure in Japanese history becomes interesting because it's like well she was the only woman to work at the time so it's interesting to see what she's uh doing even if it's not like i wouldn't say this is as good as like what now we're or ozu were doing at the time it's just a, a different angle on japanese cinema than we might have seen otherwise so kudos to society as well <laughs> we're doing great everything's yeah. going great oh yeah uh future so bright we gotta wear shades <laughs> Uh, all right, moving on to my number three, and here's where I slotted in my uh, one Godard, hmm. and the one that was the biggest discovery, the biggest surprise to me was 1985's Hail Mary. Sure. Um, uh, I don't know, sometimes with, uh, uh, with, with someone like Godard, I start to get, because, you know, it's in my nature to doubt myself and beat myself up i i i think with something like hail mary like um oh am i just responding to hail mary because it's one of his more like narratively straightforward accessible films and then i just step back and being like hail mary only seems like an accessible movie yeah. if you spent two months watching godard movies <laughs> um yeah. it's still very very uh godard um in its provocation um in it's uh uncomfortable comedy not like comedy not like cringe i'm not talking about like yeah, yeah. you know uh the british office or whatever but i'm saying like uh comedy that comes from like the threat of violence sometimes like totally. and at the end is it uh i'm already forgetting is it gabriel the angel gabriel is like a short-tempered brute yeah <laughs> like, that's 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 so funny to me um <clears throat> But also, and I, I think I said this on our Godard episode, um, just shot for shot, one of the most gorgeous movies that he's that he's made. Um, it's it, it's it's lovely. The uh, uh, I think I watched it on Canopy. It was uh, HD transfer. looked looked fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I feel like it's not one that I've um, I had heard much about. It didn't seem to come up. Um, when I, when I heard about him and, uh, heard about his movies that I hadn't seen, but, um, yeah, big, uh, so that, I guess that's why it's on here as a, as a surprise. I know there is a, um, 
there's a Kino Blu-ray of it. Um, uh, Cohen that, Film Collection, technically, but oh, Cohen okay. distributes the Cohen stuff these days. Okay. Um, then I think if, if I if I log into my account on Kino, I think it's probably still in my card. I've been like considering pulling the trigger. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, I, re- I mean, I recommend it. I have it and it's not only, yeah, a great transfer and, you know, higher bit rate than you get on canopy streaming. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's got a great commentary track on it too. So that's well worth listening to. Yeah. And I'm I mean, assuming the Blu-ray also has the book of Mary. The, yeah, uh, of course uh, it has yeah. it as also like just part of the feature. So you can chapter yeah. skip to hail Mary if you like, but when you hit play, you'll get both. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, not a lot to add from what we said with the Godard episode, but it, um, it's, I, think i said at the time is still true my favorite of his 80s films and i think probably the most accomplished and like has a very spiritual uh tone to it even beyond like its subject matter it's like has a an energy running through it that i don't really feel in his other films from the period that i think is really effective and i think condenses his themes that he was concerned with in the period in a more mature and evolved way um befitting the subject matter and even though the catholic yeah. church didn't agree with that um i i think he <laughs> approached it with all due respect in his own way of showing that yeah i remember i think that we had this conversation on the Godard episode where i was saying with well, the point you just made that i was like this doesn't actually seem like it's that like blasphemous or anti-religious and then you were like and so i was like i don't what were people objecting to and then you sort of reminded me that it's like people don't like to see the virgin mary like yeah. full frontal nudity for half a movie and Rampant riding nudity. around yeah. yeah not not into that the catholic church they'll come yeah. around someday i'm sure <laughs> they're famous for involving with the times um my number three very different scene uh the shaw brothers film the boxer from shantung uh so arrow put out this very kick-ass box set of shaw brothers films that i have not worked my way much more forward um on since seeing the boxer from shentong um and which i really need to get back to after you know my yearly catch-up is done uh this film totally kicks ass uh most especially it has a finale that very clearly inspired the end of kill bill volume one where it's just one guy against a ever churning sea of people inside this tea house. You know, I mean, they couldn't afford as great a uh, size of a restaurant or as elaborate of weaponry as Quentin Tarantino could at the, for Kill Bill. But it has the same sense to it of like, this guy just keeps getting like knives thrown into him and like bones broken, but just keeps <laughs> going. And it's so cool. And it's so great because like, I mean, like the rest of the movie building up to that, of course, he's just like defeating every enemy with not too much struggle. You know, the larger guys kind of put up a bigger fight and kind of give more difficulty. But for the most part, he's destroying everybody. So this the final fight, I think, starts with his like arm getting broken or something. But then he just like keeps fighting guys. And so it's like he's like uh, slightly hobbled, but obviously not in a way that's going to prevent him from getting the job done. Um, I'm struggling to remember the specifics of other set pieces because this one goes on for like 20 or 25 minutes. And obviously it comes at the end of the film and is so commanding, but the rest of the film has that same degree of energy and the same kind of command of the action language. Um, it was directed by this guy, Cheng Che, um, who had been directing movies in, like off and on since 1949. His career really took off with the rise of Kung Fu movies in like late sixties. Um, 
and which I hope there's more films from him in the Shaw Brothers set. Arrow just put out a volume two that I need to pick up. Um, but yeah, I totally love the boxer version of Shantan. Uh, all right. I said at the beginning that I was uh, reserving just one slot for movies I saw at TCM Fest. Um, anyone with a long enough memory of our TCM Fest wrap-up might be able to guess which one I picked. But uh, it's William Wyler's 1933 Counselor at Law. Oh, sure. Which um, was the movie. So uh, now I'm forgetting what the award is they give every year. But um, Leonard Moulton was the award recipient. And I guess... If you're getting the TCM Fest award, you get to program a movie. So he, it was it's the uh, Robert Osborne award, isn't it? Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So he, um, uh, so Leonard Malton, um, uh, it was a great night. Like I never, I've been to TCM Fest for you know, this is you know since 2016 or so, but I've never been to one of the Robert Osborne screens. I'm not sure if you've been, but no. it starts. There's a whole. It's a whole long time before the movie starts. Um, Hours. Uh, <laughs> not quite, but maybe like 40 <laughs> minutes. Yeah, yeah. So um, first Warren Beatty came out and introduced Leonard Moulton. And then Leonard Moulton came up and gave a whole speech. And then like to thunderous applause, he starts to step on the stage. And then he like runs back up to the podium. And he was like, oh, yeah, I forgot I'm supposed to introduce Council of the Law. <laughs> so then he introduced the movie he picked. Um and uh you know maybe maybe the magic of uh, of that setting uh informed me but i was uh again i guess with part of the reason and i keep coming to this idea of surprise there's so many william wyler movies and so many of them are good and i was surprised that i hadn't heard this that much about counselor law before like with hail mary it doesn't seem to be in the top tier of william wyler movies that get discussed i don't know maybe i'm just not having the right conversations uh but um this is uh, so 1933 pre-code uh, movie in which John Barrymore plays um, uh, a a lawyer who kind of represents. He's sort of like I guess in modern day this is a cheap comparison, but he's sort of a Saul Goodman type that he like sure. represents the lower classes and is like fighting for the rights of the lower classes, but also is like willing to like find loopholes and ways around the rules um, or in some cases just out, outright break the rules and break the law um, to get his, his job done. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and so the, the premise of so the movie is it's all one day in his office and in his office and waiting room. And it just has like three sets. There's like, I guess four, cause his office is a little like antechamber, like where his secretary sits, but basically mm-hmm. his office, the waiting room and the elevator bank outside the office. Cause it's in this like high rise. Um, and it's all very like these beautiful big art deco sets. Um, but it all takes place there. And it almost, it's the movie is almost like a farcical tragedy because it's like, it moves so fast and like, there is, you know, you've got the elevator bank that goes into the waiting room and then that goes into the secretary's room and then into Barrymore's office. But then he has a side exit out to the elevator bank. So, like, you literally have this whole circle and people like coming and going, um, different clients, but also like he's maybe going to get found out for something he did. And the tension keeps building and we know he did something wrong, but we kind of want him to get away with it because he's our guy and he's a scrapper. And he is also, so in that way, it um, reminded me of 
uh, Uncut Gems mm-hmm. um, or another James Conn movie that I watched this year, The Gambler, uh, where things keep getting worse and worse for our main character. And you're like, how, how is he going to get out of this? Uh, is he going to get out of this? Um, also like Uncut Gems, not to the extent of Uncut Gems, but um, uh, it is... I don't think the word Jewish is ever used, I think, in counselor law, mm. but it's clear that he's that's who he's supposed to be. He's supposed to come from because I think they use they say like the old country or something like that. Right. Uh, um, or like the slum or whatever he like, I think. And maybe he like changed his name and is like made something respectable in this world. But like his Jewishness is um, is a part of uh why he fights for the people he fights for because of uh, um Oh yeah. There's also like a whole thing with like communist, there's like a Marxist revolutionary who's, uh, who's uh, representing uh, who's from his old neighborhood. Uh, there's so much going on in the movie at all times. Uh, and I came around, I was building up to a point, but um, <laughs> it just uh, has this um, relentless, like piling on and movement and forward momentum, but like also this deep, deep emotion. Um, and then if we could give out, like if the i wish i don't actually wish this but what if like tcm fest had like categories like can does or whatever and you could give like best actor and best actress to people who are long dead but uh a low-key contender in that case for uh, uh supporting actress is isabel jewel who plays uh the receptionist not his not his secretary with the receptionist who sits in the in the waiting room and anytime she's on screen she never stops talking because she's (laughs) answering phones and transferring calls and talking but also carrying on with her story about what she got up to last night but then also making sure to like talk about like what am i gonna have for lunch lunch today and like placing an order with the like errand boy who goes to get the lunch it's just this incredible non-stop uh hilarious performance um that kind of uh, also, like, sets it's the first. I think she's the first character you meet in the movie, if I remember correctly. And it does that. Her like rapid fire dialogue kind of does set the pace for this movie. That's not going to let up uh, until it's like big, huge, emotional, melodramatic ending. Nice. Yeah, it's a movie I'd like to revisit because I've only seen it once many, many years ago, and probably would benefit from the energy of an audience because I remember not really like i remember liking it all right but not to the extent that you do but you're talking it up got me curious to check it out again yeah i saw it at the american legion uh theater um which i was lucky enough to get to early enough that i had one of those seats in front of like i I had all the leg room in the world you know there's like there's like the two blocks of seats and and uh uh yeah i said that the front of the back block which means i had all the leg room i love that yeah Right. It was on film too. Um, as I think Can't everything at the American Legion, I think was on film this year. Yeah. I think the only two things I saw there were this and Key Largo and they were both on film. You know, yeah. The only thing I saw there was dinner at eight and that was on film. So okay. we'll just go with our experiences and assume that goes for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> like all white men. Um, <laughs> uh, my number two, also something I saw on film um, as part of, uh, well, each January, uh, the American Cinematheque does January Giallo month. So each Monday they're doing it right now. Um, they show um, some, not necessarily rare, but maybe a little off the beaten path Giallo film. So I saw The Perfume of the Lady in Black, um, which was not a movie I'd ever heard of before this. Um, 
and certainly hadn't heard of the director Francesco Borelli, who had only who was an actor who only directed one other movie, and then was so frustrated but trying to make these two movies that he he just gave up film entirely and became a painter. Um, and I can understand why. Premier with the Lady Back is a super weird movie. So it's on the surface, it's kind of a typical Giallo movie of like a woman who's like, am I going insane? Is there a vast conspiracy against me? Is there some supernatural presence? Um, et cetera, et cetera. What's distinguished about this film from the outset is that uh, the main character played by Mimsy Farmer isn't like helpless or sheltered. There's no like, you know, she's has a sort of tragic backstory, but it isn't wrapped up in like sexual shame or she's like a dutiful housewife or whatever. Who's like, being driven insane by her being, sh- uh, what I'm trying to say, like being kind of shut in. Um, mm. She's a manager at a chemical factory. She's living her own life. She has a boyfriend, but kind of on her terms. And they have like a lively sexual relationship. And like, she's a strong independent woman of the seventies um, who begins to see a series of strange visions, random objects from her past kind of appearing where they shouldn't um, people seeming to show up who were long dead, all that kind of classic like psychological terror kind of stuff um and so as it progresses it's like is this a conspiracy am i going insane or is there something much stranger going on and really like honestly it's hard to say by the end of the film which of those three or if there's some fourth thing going on that you can't quite put into words at its center it's kind of tapping into the same vein as like a rosemary's baby but is much less literal about where the threats are coming from it's very it's very dreamlike and it has a dream logic to it that amounts to not giving you an answer ultimately into what's going on the final scene is a complete departure from everything we've seen before but which just emphasis further underscores is how unusual and strange whatever is going on in the movie is and it's just so compelling to watch it's beautifully shot um weirdly like the print they showed wasn't fading the colors were very strong but it had like all these kind of like weird blurrings in it which kind of like added to the strange like tenor of the film um so i'd be curious to watch it on blu-ray and see how it feels in a more Mm -hmm. like solid format but it made for a very uh strange and very really really kind of painterly night at the movies um and is now like not only up there with like suspiria as one of my favorite giallo films and i know giallo heads somewhere I'm sure there's someone listening who will insist that G- Suspiria isn't a Giallo film. I don't care. Um, <laughs> I do care, but I don't know if it counts or not. Not only one of my favorite, let's say, Italian horror films of the 1970s, but one of my favorite horror films, period, from any era. Um, it really taps into just a strange, horrific energy that it, I, I liked seeing movies where it's not. it stops being about an individual person and start, starts being about just like the nature of being afraid of life in some ways um yeah big big fan of this one all right we're on to my number one and uh oh i'm about to live up to the title of this show um if you haven't felt alienated by my pretensions in the past uh i'm ready 2022 is the year that i took my first step into the realm of uh, Jean-Marie Straub and Danielle Hillet. Jean-Marie Straub died recently. And so the first one, this first Straub Hillet film I ever saw is my number one film discovery <laughs> of 2022. It's 1975's Moses and Aaron or Moses und Aaron because uh, they're German or French German. Um, 
uh, and the movie is in in German. Uh, it's an opera. It's an adaptation of of an opera, hmm. and um, is presented as an as an opera. The characters sing all the dialogue. Um, but uh, you know, I, to compare it to Counselor at Law, which I talked about, this relentless forward momentum and the speed, the Strobe thing, and especially in. And by the way, listeners, tell me if I'm saying it wrong. I don't know. <laughs> like Straub, I'm okay with. I know enough German that it's probably Straub, but Huile, I don't know how you say her name. Um, anyway, uh, their thing is about like it, d- more rigor, more. It, I wouldn't call their movies, wouldn't necessarily call Moses and Aaron slow, but it has a rhythm to it that is like static shot beautifully composed by the way static shot that you will come back and forth to uh every once in a while a high angle shot every once in a while you'll get a slow pan which feels like when you're used to seeing the same three shots in repetition over and over again when when you return to that shot and then it suddenly pans to the left you're like holy shit like <laughs> um uh i reminded what's the um oh shit what's the Chantal ackerman short um where the camera keeps spinning around her bedroom Oh, is it uh, uh, Hotel it Monterey? Um, is that what it's called? Um, it doesn't sound familiar, but uh, it's just the camera moving. And but at one point, it stops and starts to move the other way, and right. it feels like the most dramatic, crazy right. thing, craziest thing that ever could happen. And that's like Moses and Aaron has a couple of those big moments with the camera panning out, panning left to right, or as happens later in the movie, just cutting to black and having lengthy sections where you're just hearing things and not seeing anything. Um, and, uh, I, I talked about council of law building up to this big dramatic ending. Moses and Aaron does so as well, but through this steady March forward, you know, mm. it's, it's, it's not a high, a uh, fast paced film in any, in any, in any way, but, uh, it's in three acts. Um, the first act, uh, is Moses and Aaron, who's his brother, trying to convince the Jews to leave uh, and go and flee into the desert with them. The second act takes... This, Moses isn't in the second act almost at all. It takes place almost entirely while he's up on the mountain and Aaron's sort of in charge of the the, the Israelites. Um, uh, and then when it gets to like the the famous like golden calf and, and the sort of uh, debauchery, it, the movie goes nuts by its own like by its own standards, it goes nuts, but you you've been so disciplined and, and adjusted and conditioned to those standards right. that just something like, even though it's a very austere shot, like, um, there's, there's a, like, there's a shot, like a guy runs through the frame on fire. That's pretty, it's like so crazy. Yeah. Um, there's, there's some, uh, uh, I don't know. You, you you know, read the Bible or just watch the movie. If you want to know uh, what happens. And then the third act, the very short third act, uh, happens when Moses comes back down and is uh, uh, furious by what uh, Aaron has allowed to happen while he was while he was gone. But uh, it was really great as just an entrance to. Um, I've seen a few more Strohle films now, and I will watch a few more this year. Um, uh, but this is a great starting point because uh it's very academic like i said and rigorous and disciplined and all of those things that um i've come to associate with them but it also uh achieves a surprising amount of drama and and spectacle 
so yeah, this is, I, I, like I said before, I really focused on the word discovery and putting together this list. Right. And so I don't really know if Moses and Aaron best new film to me that I ever saw, but it felt like the biggest discovery to me because it's uh, a, a filmmaking team um, that I had heard about for years and um, uh, to, to step one foot into their world and for it to be this uh, engrossing and, and impactful uh, was a big discovery. Cool. Right, right on. Yeah. It's one that I've wanted to see for some time and hope to get to see. Well, I'm pretty sure that one's on canopy. I mean, a lot of their, like a lot of their films are, you can rent and stream through the grasshopper website. Mm. Um, but I think Moses and Aaron is one of the ones that's uh, cause that grasshopper, unless listeners tell me if, if I'm wrong, I don't think grasshoppers thing is available as an app on Apple TV. Apparently they have a Roku app, but that's like it. Um, so I've just been, when I watch these movies through grasshopper, I just airplay them to my TV and it's fine. Um, but, uh, let me know if there's a way to watch the grasshopper stuff on the Apple TV. feels like there should be, but, uh, I think Moses and Aaron is just, uh, regular ass streaming. Good old ass streaming. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, very much a departure for my number one, um, which as I was going through things, seemed obvious and yet unusual but uh it is a film we just discussed on a patreon or maybe we're soon to discuss depending on what order they get released and peyton reads down with love um yeah it hasn't come out yet but yeah this is a film that i've been wanting to see pretty much since it came out just never got around to it kind of thing um and i'm glad that it took me some time to get to because the films that it is be wrong to say parodying um more in conversation with in the same way that like Shaun of the dead is yes on the surface a parody of zombie films but is also a very earnest engagement with the same kind of tenor and very much has the same thematic concerns down with love is kind of pitched as a parody of the uh sex comedies of the late 50s and 1960s particularly the rock Hudson doris day ones and really tony randall's kind of the third leg there tony randall does show up in this movie which is a delight um but also just of the whole larger tapestry of the era and now that i'm much more familiar with those um films and the pleasures therein, i'm glad that i waited this long to see it both so I can get their specific reference points, recognize that David Hyde Pierce is pretty much doing a spot on Tony Randall impression in it. Um, but also because like I said, it really is in conversation with those movies and really an extension of them and looking beneath the surface of its very slavish devotion to recreating the aesthetics of the era. Um, cinematographer Jeff Cronenworth, um, use what was then kind of a new digital color timing process that um, had just kind of been explored in mainstream films to really get the look of the film, this film just right. And they do like all these great split screen effects that are kind of building on the kind of sexually charged things they would do with Rock Hudson and Doris Day um, back in the day. Um, but even beyond all that stuff and a really whip start, smart screenplay by uh, Eve alert that can't be how you pronounce your name but it's basically spelled like alert but with an h after the a uh and dennis drake who are things like tv writers never really went on to do much else um which is unfortunate uh but yeah whip start screenplay but even beneath like the surface of all that it's really 
a film that becomes about the assumptions we make about ourselves, about the era we live in, about other people and the way everything fits into society. And, you know, in a more overt way, it's undercutting the the assumptions that we make about like the 1950s or 60s um, sexual culture and what women could do or were capable of back then. But because it's so thorough in excoriating that kind of then becomes about the assumptions we make about any era and about the assumptions we can make about the present era as well. And so it's a really excessively smart film that I'm really surprised made it through the mainstream uh, system is a 20, 20th century Fox release. This wasn't like a art house picture. Mm-hmm. It was in mainstream wide release theaters and um, they lost a good deal of money on it. I'm not surprised because yeah, unless you know those films, there wouldn't be any immediate reason to want to see it. And unless you're willing to watch a romantic comedy that um, is systematically dismantling the reasons why you would want to see a romantic comedy <laughs> while still being like a total gas. Like it's a total pleasure to watch. It's super funny, um, very well performed and occasionally very sweet. Um, so it delivers on all that, but is also just a really sharp uh, reflection on that. It's interesting that this came out in the same year as like uh, Looney Tunes back in action or Kill Bill. Like there are all these movies that were kind of like these pop art, revisitations and explorations of um mid-century mainstream kind of lower class if you will art um but doing them in really sharp ways and updating them to kind of explore the modern era as well um yeah weird weird early bush era um (laughs) tendency to do but um this was as good as those films if not better i was really really glad i finally caught around to it well, yeah, listeners can hear my thoughts on it if they uh, subscribe to the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Battleship Pretension is coming up in a week or two, uh, that episode. But I will say, uh, what I will say now is um, you said, like, you couldn't imagine any reason people would go see it. But the thing is, we used to have movie stars in this country. That is true. And so the thing is, like, Renee Zellweger was huge. Yeah. Uh, at, at at this time, this is after Chicago and the same year as cold mountain and after, obviously after Bridget Jones, like Renee Zellweger was a, a, a big name that, that, um, uh, you know, used to be able to get things made, if not apparently get butts and seats for yeah. down with love. I, I didn't know because I don't know, Look, this is a whole other topic that we could do as an episode someday. I don't care how much money any movie ever made. I'll ne- I never will. I know you can give me the argument why it's important, but I will never, be able to care enough to pay attention to the box office, <laughs> but there's just been a lot of talk with Babylon and uh, the Fablemans and Avatar of like yeah. what is what do box office receipts say about movies and like I'm sure plenty, um, but I have never cared. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a larger discussion that maybe we should do an episode on sometime. Yeah. But it also just like gives you the pulse of the culture and what people want to see and what the industry and the ways in which industry will support things um you know release patterns and the legs and ability for movies to stay in theaters anymore i think i have a big a lot to do with that as well all right well uh we did this is a great way to kick off our look back at 2022 we'll be putting a pause on that and talking about other things uh for a few weeks but um this was a nice little uh amuse bouche absolutely for that um uh I was hoping, because I know you're a big Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs fan, 
I was hoping you were going to say, what's in a moose bush, uh, which is my favorite lines from that movie. Uh, when, when, uh, it's like when I forget the main character's name now, but when he's giving his like big speech, like rally yeah. the town speech at the end. And he says like, if you think that was bad, what's happened so far was just an amuse bouche. And like one voice <laughs> in the crowd goes, what's an amuse bouche. One uh, of those things that they like hired <laughs> Patton Oswalt to write a line for yeah. to fill out. Yeah. Uh, but it always makes me laugh. I need to watch that movie again. Uh, Absolutely. All right. Uh, well, you can find, us at battleshipretention.com. That's also where you can find a link to the GoFundMe to help Tyler and his family with their medical bills. That's pinned to the top of the homepage, battleshipretention.com. Go check that out, please. Um, you can, uh, let's see, email me at david at battleshipretention.com. Follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Check out my other podcast, uh, the one where I met your mother, where my wife and I watch an episode of Friends and an episode of How I Met Your Mother every week. Uh, we're in the, for How Many Mother fans like me, we're in the midst of a great stretch of season four. Uh, and we watched, um, the, uh, the episode, the fight, which is, uh, uh, a great episode and also stars a, um, uh, low key David and Tyler favorite, uh, comedic, uh, character actor, Will Sasso. Will Sasso is a, a psychotic bartender. <laughs> um, so that's, Man, uh, don't say that but, name too fast. Uh, <laughs> Will Sasso. Yeah. Um, all right, so uh, check all that out. Scott, where can people find you should you uh, care for them too? Uh, you know, Twitter, going to request to follow. Um, Letterboxd, I'm trying to get back in the habit of at least jotting down some thoughts about the movies I see so I have, you know, I don't forget everything about them. Um, and I don't think of anything else that I have going on, but probably not much. Yeah, that'll do. All right, well, uh, thanks for filling in. Oh, anytime. Um, thanks for being almost as good as Tyler. Uh, thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.